Part Four, Chapter Six of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Four, Chapter Six. With five hundred dollars in the Brookway Bank, as his half of the advance royalties on the Duchess decides. With his first orchestral suite in the repertory of the Chamber Music Society, with David more surely his than ever before, the post-holiday weeks were redolent with a quiet satisfaction that was quite a new experience. The smoothness of life, the absence of any cause for worry, was lulling and pleasant. The concert had been for him a local triumph. He sat in his room on the afternoon following the first performance of his suite in the small concert hall of the school, smoking and looking out across the hills, gently salted with white, through a deepening amethyst air flecked with drifting snowflakes. He had been congratulated by everyone, it seemed, and the Leffingtons had given an informal reception for him and the ensemble at their own house at the end of the evening when the concert was over. His position at Brookway was sure, he knew, and in the quiet sweep of these hills, the strong dignity of these gray walls, and the calm beauty of the life around him, he sensed a deep and peaceful harmony to his own heart's tranquil singing. He let his mind go drifting down a dim vista of perfect days, days in which David could figure too, making the round complete and wholly good. There was a timid knock at the door. Kurt started and called, Come in. The door opened, but so dark had the room become that Kurt, his eyes still accustomed to the dimming but still faintly luminous window, could not tell who had entered. "'Who is it?' he asked, turning inquiringly in his chair. "'It's Clayton, Ford Clayton. May I come in a minute?' "'Why, of course you may.' Kurt rose and stepped toward him, feeling his way about the table. "'Here, I'll make a light. No, please don't, sir.' Just let me sit here on the floor by the window. All right, if you like. Kurt wondered at this visit, for since the time he had blundered upon the boy and his friend in the practice room, weeks before, Clayton had been aloof and embarrassed in his presence. Kurt had tried his hardest to overcome the boy's diffidence, but he had met only with a polite but final reticence that was as effective as a wall between them. It had made Clayton's lessons difficult for him to teach and was proving, he feared, a barrier to the boy's progress. Kurt knew instinctively now that Clayton desired this sea of dusk as a shield to cover his timidity. "'Maybe I shouldn't have come over,' said Clayton, sinking cross-legged to the floor. His face, thrust forward eagerly, was a study in shadows, a faint luminosity of the winter dusk, cutting across it strangely, gave it a look almost sculptural. "'Nonsense. Why not?' asked Kurt. "'But I wanted to tell you about your music last night,' he hurried on. "'It was, it was awfully, awfully beautiful.' And he halted, lowering his head quickly, ashamed of the awkwardness of his praise. "'Thanks,' said Kurt. "'Thanks. I'm glad you liked it.' "'Oh, I did like it. It was like, like these hills somehow. I, I liked it,' he ended, lamely. "'He's about to run away.' thought Kurt, 
and ventured suddenly to say what he had been thinking. I've hardly seen you, Ford, since the night I stumbled on you and young Green in the practice room. The boy's arms he knew stiffened against the floor in protest against this uncovering of the past. I felt rotten about that, Ford, he went on quietly. I knew I interrupted something that meant a great deal to you, and I regretted so strongly. I hope you've forgiven me. It was all right, the boy mumbled. You're afraid I don't understand, but I do. You're like I was, a good deal, he went on. Set apart from the rest of the fellows here because of your, your taste. They're a healthy, happy lot of young animals, but thoughtless. Ford. He leaned forward, elbows on his knees, his hands gesturing palely at the almost dark room. There's a thing in some of us that makes us lonely and unhappy often. But there's always a compensation if we seek it out, in ourselves maybe, or in one or two of our friendships. Yours and Donald's might be like that. Your music and your love of all beautiful things is another. Maybe a more certain one, I don't know. He fell silent. The boy said nothing. His face was barely visible now, but Kurt made no move to light the lamp at his side. This quiet, this darkness, might go on forever. There was nothing more to say. In a strong dark flood, the sense of the destiny of this boy swept over him, the destiny of all such boys everywhere, their heritage of desire and shame, of uncertainty, of deception, of hypocrisy, and of tumultuous joy and burning regret, of friends without friendship, of concealing the truth and revealing the lie. And ultimately, what? Would such a one be better off never to know, never to recognize his inversion for what it was, but to live lonely and apart in an incomprehensible and unfriendly world? No, no. Whatever happened ultimately, Whatever advancing years might bring, knowledge was necessary. There would be moments of flame which perhaps, in the end, would recompense one for the hours of dust and ashes and gaunt bitterness. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Fear. Fear. He shook himself. It was as though these conjecturings were to be sloughed off like a snake's dry skin. Yet he knew it was not so. These fragments have I shored against my ruin. He rose slowly and felt his way, hands extended, to the piano. Here's a thing I've been working on, he said, to the motionless boy whom he could no longer see. No one's heard it. His fingers, seeking and finding, in darkness, as certainly as in light, the smooth, cool keys, in finding them and compelling them to sound forth his own design, the patterns of his own dream, seemed to touch a certainty that could never be questioned. And he played as though the piano were a suddenly revealed savior. Here, here in these slight tinkling sounds, pulsing off into silence, was a language without equivocation or deceit. He finished, but his fingers clung to the keys as if loath to let them go. There was no sound from the boy by the window. Had he gone then? Kurt turned, unwilling to break the spell of the moment, and turned on the light behind him. Clayton sat where he first placed himself when he came into the room. His hand was across his eyes, shielding them from the intruding light. He rose awkwardly. I—I I liked, 
he began. Oh, never mind, put in Kurt. Tell me later. You'll have to be running now. It's nearly time for dinner. You'll come again, won't you? Any time you like. Oh, yes, sir. Clayton edged to the door. His hand was in his side coat pocket. As if the movement cost him a tremendous wrench of the will, he pulled out a small package and thrust it toward Kurt. Here, he said, I, I got this during the holidays, and I thought, I thought maybe you'd like it. He put the package into Kurt's hand and was gone. Kurt regarded it curiously as he undid the wrappings. He found within a small bronze figure, scarcely six inches high, the figure of a boy. He turned to the light and exclaimed softly, it was an exquisite replica of Donatello's David. David. He set it in the pool of light on his desk, the pert sweet figure. It might be David, his own David, standing pleased and nonchalant regarding him. He turned it round and round, a strange tightness in his throat, awed at the unaccountable workings of things, at the curious pertinence of this gift. Life ached in him. Dressing for dinner, dinner too seemed too utterly mundane. His plans for a quiet weekend at Brookway were suddenly distasteful and engulfed in a vast, intense longing for David. The chimes across the quad shook out a deep preliminary clanging. Six o'clock. There was still a train for New York at six-fifty. He could make it if he hurried. Ten minutes later he was striding down the dark road to the station, his heels ringing on the frozen ground. His mind sang with the crisp stars, and through it, like a suddenly remembered, a suddenly emergent theme of music, ran an idea he had fondled secretly, tentatively, for weeks, never allowing it until now, in this sudden strange elation, to break through to the surface, into the realm of practical conjecturing we call planning. But planning he was now, his mind leaping forward swiftly, like a spring freshet newly released. To share the idea with David was now his whole thought. In the train, the rumble of the wheels was a counterpoint to this new and whirling melody. It would be the test they had both wanted, and thanks to the Duchess, it now seemed within the realm of the possible. There were, he knew, many places in the vicinity of Brookway, abandoned farms that could be bought cheaply. He would buy one. Together, when summer came, he and David would repair and restore the house, furnish it as they chose. With David's help it would be easy. Then, by fall, they could establish themselves there together for a year, perhaps forever. Kurt felt sufficiently secure in his position at the school to believe that no objection would be raised to his living outside the school precincts. Some of the other masters did. David could write his book. He could continue teaching and writing. There might even be a new collaboration. Into a hundred variations the theme evolved itself, and from it grew a hundred themes new and divergent. To share this fervid dream with David, this was all his thought. It was nearly twelve before he reached David's door. He rapped, but there was no reply. He found the latch-key David had given him, inserted it in the lock, and went inside. It was dark and quiet. David, he called. David. He fumbled along the wall to the lamp and lighted it. The room was in considerable confusion. David's clothing was flung about on the floor. 
bureau drawers were open. Disappointment and pique mingled in Kurt's mind. Why should David be away tonight of all nights? He peered into the half-open wardrobe. David's evening clothes were gone. Kurt moved about the room mechanically picking up the scattered clothing and setting things to rights. On the table lay a small white envelope from which protruded a folded note. Kurt examined it, and a sudden wave of fear swept over him. He opened it nervously. David, it read, meet me at the Empire Theater at 8.30. After the show, we shall go to my apartment. Important, I shall expect you. Ozzy. Kurt swayed a moment, his eyes closed, his fingers pressing whitely against the tabletop, sickening at the irony of this thing. David, David, how could he have done this thing, his vows, his promises? He had deemed it all so perfect, so sure an augury of peace and happiness, and now it was smashed like a fragile wine-glass. He paced the floor, dry-eyed and miserable, catching at each turn, with a certain perverse satisfaction, a glimpse of his white face in the mirror. He sat on the bed, rigid and sick. The ideal so carefully rebuilt, so seemingly certain, was chaos. Who was right then? He could see Tony smiling cynically, and hear his voice saying, Don't be a fool, Kurt. Take your pleasure and then forget it, and there'll be no regrets. He could see Chloe, aggrieved, and hear her saying, This proves me right, doesn't it, Kurt, dear? There's nothing in your sort of love to build on. Come to me. Come to me. David untrue. David with Ozzy. David in he knew not what disgusting melange. It was sickening. And what was to be done now? If he waited here, David would return eventually. And as ill as he was, from the shock of David's philandering, he knew in the heaviness of his heart that David returned, with even the most tenuous of explanations, would reduce him to tears and to an apologetic abeyance of all his suspicions and jealousy. He did not want that. He wanted David to know himself, found out, and to suffer from the knowledge as he was suffering now. He was a fool. There might be a hundred explanations of David's absence, beside this note from Ozzy. There might even be legitimate reasons for such a note. Yet he knew, almost with nausea, that his excuses, excuses so pathetically sought for, were pallid and unlikely in the face of circumstance. He envisioned himself doing heroic things as he sat in this quiet room. He framed braggart notes, reproachful notes, notes cynical, notes sad, notes nostalgic and tender, notes bitter and despairing, to be left for David's perusal. I have gone to Tony, but he didn't want Tony. I have gone to Chloe, but Chloe seemed less than ever desirable. The lover in him, the aggressor, was lost in passivity, in a flooding desire to be loved by David, by David. He lay down on the bed. David's dress shirt clutched to him and sobbed hysterically. For a long time he cried, his body shaken by sobs. Then, in a swift revulsion, he saw himself duped, saw David swearing eternal faithfulness, reverting behind his back to the old wanton and forsworn ways. Hard as it would be, he should be punished. 
Kurt went to the littered table, seeking a blank piece of paper. There was none. He seized Ozzie's note, reversed it, and wrote hastily. I hope to see you. If you have any explanation, write me at Brookway. Kurt End of Part 4 Chapter 6